mini episode 1231 of the FDH Lounge is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at Sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini episode 1231. This is FDH Managing Partner Rick Morris. We have with us here today FDH Lounge dignitary Ben Chu. We are going to be breaking down the last dance, going through it. This is part 13 of our Coronavirus Crisis 2020 series. We are looking at uh, what is almost the uh, official piece of entertainment during the lockdown here, uh, or at least probably the most popular as far as pop culture goes. ESPN, of course, deciding to move up the Michael Jordan documentary several months and uh, take advantage of the fact that we're all at home, there are no sports on. And uh, In later May 2020, as we are recording this, this is starting to change a bit, but sports are still nowhere near on the immediate horizon. I, a little bit of stuff, a little NASCAR here, a little Bundesliga there, but uh, not sports as we knew them before. So the last dance steps into the void, and uh, Ben will uh, get a chance to talk about what we uh, what we thought of it. Uh, what were your thoughts overall on it, my friend? Uh, I thought it was it was arguably one of the most anticipated documentaries when it was back in 2018, 2019. And I think overall, just for fans' support, it was a And in the sense that it was an accurate documentary, it was an accurate documentary, I think, 100% from the perception of Michael Jordan. If you want to read about the psyche of Michael Jordan, these type of things. The actual events themselves, eh, I don't know. We'll talk about this a little bit more. I, I would give it probably about a C to C-plus for accuracy, B-plus for entertainment in my book. Uh, but as far as, I mean, it was 100% accurate in showing you Michael Jordan war, warts and all. But uh, it, when you look at the fact that, again, this thing was greenlit by him eventually. The director had talked to him in 2016 on the day of the Cavs championship parade. This had been in the works more or less since it was shot back in 97-98 when the footage had been there. Uh, how ironic is it, Ben Chu? We are here in a lockdown that was caused by a virus that came out of Wuhan, China. And essentially, this documentary is the Chinese democracy of long-awaited documentaries. I have no comment, Rick. No comment. <laughs> uh, I, I, I wonder if... Is that why you brought the Asian person up? <laughs> uh, 
I, I wonder if I wonder if Axl Rose might see any uh, point of comparison there. I wonder, but yeah, I don't know. yeah, but it's this. I mean, that's the only other thing I could think of that had been under wraps for such a long period of time. Uh, Michael Jordan eventually uh, decided to go ahead with this, and the very cynical thought being that uh, as LeBron James was edging closer and closer to his career accomplishments, that it would be a way to uh, it, the, the only card Michael Jordan had left as far as reasserting himself in the GOAT debate because his career is behind him. There's nothing else that could really be done to thrust himself into the forefront, the consciousness of today. And in that way, and uh, I'm, I'm certainly not going to be so cynical as to say that Michael Jordan is glad that we had a global pandemic so that it could occupy center stage as it did, but if, if that was his point of view four years ago in deciding to go ahead with this, to reassert himself in that way, suffice it to say, under the circumstances, Ben, it couldn't have worked out any better than he could have ever imagined. Right, and uh, just if we want to talk just like the brass activist, Michael Jordan memorabilia has been skyrocketing through the totality of it, one of the, uh, the infamous Michael Jordan 
Sure. And that's a thing where, again, I said before, if you're looking at this as far as a documentary of the psyche of Michael Jordan, it's 100% accurate. If you're looking at it as a documentary of the events as they unfolded, uh, much less so. And, and to where I've heard people say it's not a documentary, it's entertainment. I think what they mean to say is it's not journalism or pure journalism, it's entertainment. And that's where I would agree with them because in looking at this again, it's been a little bit hazy, Ben Chu, on what has come out as far as uh, how the decisions were made on this thing. But watching this, I, you know, I, again, I don't know if this is me wearing a tinfoil hat or not, but I don't feel like it is in this instance. To me, it was crystal clear Michael Jordan had final cut, and that compromised the accuracy of it. I, I think on some level there, if you're ever focusing on one professional athlete who's had a cultivated and experienced support with Michael Jordan his entire career, it, that's always going to be a minor issue within the narrative. And it, again, it depends in terms of how a director is allowed to be certain things and how you build a story from it. Because there, as a basketball historian, we all know there were like significant omissions of stuff that should have been discussed a little bit further onward. But in terms of the totality of a single 10-part series, it covered, I would say, 90% accurately most of the things that happened. But then there's always going to be 10% of stuff they didn't cover or things that were fudged to make it look better in terms of the eyes of the document, the documentee, per se. Well, I mean, this is a sort of half joke, a bitter half joke that I made on Twitter when it was going on. I think it was parts five and six of the documentary. I think it was the night of that when Jerry Seinfeld appeared when they were doing the 98 part and then when they did the flashback to 92. And I was like, you know, how fitting is it Jerry Seinfeld appears on the episode where they yada, yada, yada the 92 Cavs because... That's a part of it. And again, I'm a lifelong Cavs fan. I'm going to be a little sensitive about these things. But to me, you're setting up a narrative here. The 91 East Finals, okay, that was the culmination of many years versus Detroit. I get that. Whatever. 93, yes, they were taken to the wall by the Knicks. I get that. But 92 against the Cavs, it's the battle to defend your title which was monumental. It was the first title defense that the Bulls ever went through. They, they, they skipped ahead to the, uh, the, the, the NBA Finals in 92, and that was a thing where in watching that, it was a very, very competitive six-game series. I remember one game where the Cavs just flat blew them out. It was very exciting as a Cavs fan. I will say also, too, that what I noticed at the time, and I've talked about this on the show almost ad nauseum because I compared it when we were talking about the Cavs run in the mid to late uh, 2010s with LeBron about how Tristan Thompson was so demoralized the other team with offensive rebounds a couple of those playoff series I think especially against Atlanta that's what Horace Grant did to my Cavs in 92. Horace Grant look there was a big three the first time around not just the second time around when when uh, Rodman was there for the second three-peat the first three-peat Horace Grant was very important but you get back to final cut Jordan has an axe to grind against them because he blames them for the Jordan rules. Horace Grant showed up on there primarily in terms of being blamed for that. And then when Orlando beat the Bulls in 95 to go to the finals about how much it meant to Horace Grant to stick it to the Bulls. But uh, again, 
his great accomplishment in that series, getting all those offensive rebounds and really, really demoralizing the Cavs and helping to kind of grind them down, uh, again, to me that's emblematic of how he didn't get the credit that he deserved, and I felt that was the biggest omission of the series was in, in glossing over and treating it like it was just a big two the first time around, the first three-peat. Obviously, to me, Jordan and Pippen were, were clearly several rungs above Horace, but to act like he wasn't a big star in his own right, I thought was just, it was crappy, I thought. Yeah, I don't, I don't want to say it was the biggest omission, because I still clearly see the biggest omission was them not mentioning the uh, mailman doesn't deliver on Sunday trash talk from Scottie Pippen in the, I believe, the 97 finals. Yeah. agree some of the choices that they made were uh, interesting to say the least as far as what they covered I've seen some criticism as well that uh, you didn't really hear anything about the Houston Rockets winning the title the two years in between the three peats and again maybe that's just them sort of putting that great asterisk on it that it was without the Jordan slash Pippen Bulls in those years but uh, that was kind of noteworthy the other thing was and, and this is where, and again, I didn't feel like I learned an awful lot from, from the, well, let me, before I get further into my point, let me ask you, I mean, I felt like I learned a few things here and there. Obviously, some of the details about Dennis Rodman and Carmen Electra, we could have inferred that over the years, but there, there was a little bit of a TMI, which I suppose was to be expected in this documentary, but by and large, I didn't feel like I learned a whole lot new. Did, did you feel like you did, Ben? I mean, you, we, uh, in terms of just like the uncut scenes that we were able to see from that season, from the, you know, from their final championship run, we did see it. We definitely, I think, it, it did a good job encompassing the bull from the early 1980s before Jordan got there and discussed shit of how the team was back then. Because I think a lot of young kids and just people growing up, like, there was always this perception that the Chicago Bulls were a fantastic organization from the beginning. And most people don't know that they were pretty much a lot That's and right. It, it kind of feels like at times that we're just, it, it, is that the, the birth of the Bulls is cognizant with the birth of Michael Jordan at the same time. And you can't really move against either of those scenarios. 
Exactly. And, I, and you know, when I was asking you the question, like, I, you and I are, are basically historian types. So we're, we're well-versed in a lot of this kind of stuff. So it's not necessarily a put-down of them to say that we didn't learn anything really super new. Or we might have learned some things here and there, but maybe not as much as we might have thought. Because you and I came into this with a tremendous background on what actually did happen. But the one... The one thing that it sort of reinforced in my mind that I think I knew, but I maybe didn't grasp as much until this, I get the whole thing in the end. I get Jerry Krause being the villain of the piece because it's insane to rip that team apart at that point in time. A team that probably had another title left in them, maybe two, maybe more, although I doubt it, but probably at least two. And uh, again, uh, Reinsdorf uh, and, and his cheapness uh, bears in on this as well. His, his economic want to break up that team because of the salaries and everything. But I, I get that part of it. But as far as Kraus being up until that point, arguably one of the great executives in NBA history, uh, the, just the, the entire team being put around Jordan, and you look at that and you say, well, you know, Jordan lifted these guys, whatever. Yeah, but it had to be the right pieces around him. And I think, if anything, we've seen over the course of LeBron's career subsequently and the careers of other great players what happens when they do have good fits around them and when they don't. And everything that was put around Michael Jordan ended up working and coalescing with him. Some of that is the genius of Michael Jordan. Uh, some of that is the coaching of Phil Jackson. But some of that, yes, is everything with Jerry Krause from being the first guy on God's green earth to be talking about wanting to get Scottie Pippen in there and noticing him and wanting him to be a part of it. The aforementioned Horace Grant, all the other moves in the early going, the pieces that were around Jordan, it's, it's no accident that the pieces around him fit as well as they did, and it is not 100% Michael Jordan. And while the, the whole thing... I get that. I get that they emphasized Jerry Krause's outsized role in the premature breakup of the team. But part of the weakness I felt also, too, of Jordan having final cut is that Michael Jordan is going to go to his grave not giving Jerry Krause the credit he deserves for helping build the thing in the first place. Right. And I mean, that's going to be hard for any athlete because when we, and again, if we look at how kind of everything ended for Krause, reinforces what the belief is, which was Jerry Krause was a great GM, but then his ego got in the way. And again, it, it's going to be what it is going to be at that period. Of right. Time. But to, to look through at least some of the names that he was able to draft and he was able to acquire over their time, he did a very good job of finding the right pieces and getting the right, you know, finding the right fits in per se of what they really needed in those Chicago teams. And I, and I understand it too because if you're an athlete or you're a coach, when management takes credit for what happened, it's going to be a much different opinion at the end of the day. Because 
exactly. And spoiler alert, they do end up breaking up the Bulls in 98. That is the last run. So I apologize for that spoiler for any of y'all that don't know how this thing ends. But, uh, I mean, it's it's interesting because when you, if you dig a little bit deeper on, on my last point here about Krauss, it is, I mean, off the top of my head, off the top of your head, probably, at least in modern sports history, a very, very unique legacy to have in terms of, again, and, and everyone will always put the asterisk on him, well, he didn't draft Jordan, but look, I guarantee you, if he was the GM in 84, and they had the third pick, and Jordan was there, they'd have taken him. I mean, that's, and just about any GM with the third pick would have taken Jordan there, uh, but as far as to do such an incredible job and then to live long enough to become the villain, so to speak, or in this case, by, by, by live, I mean hold the job. I mean, you think of somebody like Tom Landry the last couple of years in Dallas, but that was more like a slow kind of fade out of the Cowboys, and people were still shocked when he was fired just because of everything he'd accomplished prior to that. I mean, that's probably the closest you can get is somebody who's a legend who kind of Maybe they hang on a little bit too long, or their last couple of years are unsuccessful. But in the case of Krauss, active legacy self-destruction as this was. A guy who would have been, you know, a no-brainer NBA Hall of Fame GM to that, you know, from that point on to get, at the very least, a much more complicated legacy by being along with the co-owner uh, or I'm sorry, along with the owner, one of the co-architects of bringing the whole thing crashing down prematurely. It, it's a legacy that I can't think of anybody else having the same type of legacy in sports, not off the top of my head. I mean, the thing that makes it bad for his scenario, too, is that essentially the the way it broke up made logical sense, but then people tend to forget that whole team in the lockout year was arguably one of the worst teams in NBA history. Yep. They still hold the record for the lowest so and whatever insecurity he had at the time about not getting enough credit for the rise of the Bulls it would have come he just needed to trust that it would have come if, if you're the general manager of the six-time world champions and yeah you didn't get Jordan which a lot you know people again probably unfairly dumped on him for that but you put everybody else around Jordan including 
Phil Jackson, which that's the grand irony at the end of this thing here, is that Phil Jackson uh, ended up, uh, you know, on uh, such bad terms with him, and that whole infamous thing of, uh, you know, he won't be back next year no matter what. I mean, it's it's shocking to consider that a coach that was coming off of a two-peat heading for a three-peat uh, being told ahead of time he wouldn't be back the next year no matter what, simply because Jerry Krause wanted to get his buddy Tim Floyd in there so much. You look at all these type things. Again, uh, it, very, very interesting choice. I think we were all looking to see, again, spoiler alert here, but if there was going to be any kind of an epilogue, there wasn't. They really seemed determined to end this thing on about as high a note as possible. I've seen some joking on social media about, boy, I can't wait for episodes 11 and 12 this week of Michael Jordan in a Wizards uniform. Uh, there was none of that, Ben Chu. No, and I think we all, in terms of we all know that for an event or for something like this documentary, that it's always going to be the framework to be an athlete. And we're going to see, as we saw with ESPN, they're already discussing their own 10-part documentary on Tom Brady coming up in 2021. We're going to see a lot more of these documentaries because I think really like looking back at the historical times of sports and then re-experiencing them in the moment. In comparison to what a lot of documentaries tend to do now for sports, they try to cram everything into one make nicely neat two-hour packaging. And eventually, I think one of the big, you know, champions of this, this 10 sort of extended format, which I would even equate to like a mini-series at this point, is that it does a very good job of showing up the legacy of an Well, in terms of that, Ben, again, with what they're going to do with Brady and Belichick, you're going to be looking at a situation where, uh, obviously, the epilogue will be playing out this fall as far as their first year apart. But essentially, it's going to be zero distance. Part of the magic of this whole thing, and where, like I said, for, for all the nitpicking I'm doing about accuracy here and there and different aspects of it, where I said I still give it at least a B-plus for entertainment, is... It was really excellent. I did look forward to watching it on Sunday nights. It was it was something where, again, in this weird, weird sportsless world that we've been in, it was something for everybody collectively to kind of look forward to. But part of it is the magic of distance, of nostalgia, of during, and, and, and again, what will never be divorced from it. It's a time and a place. The fact that it happened during this pandemic, we're all on lockdown, we don't have sports, we're, we're, we're watching this, this thing here. It'll always be wedded to the time and place that we saw it. But part of it also is 22 years since the last dance. There's been enough time. Like you said, there have been kids that have been born and have grown up that never experienced Michael Jordan in the 90s Bulls. Uh, there's those of us where it is wedded to, uh, you, know, I, 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 you know, very, very young adulthood in my case, uh, younger than that for you but a time and a place that we both remember. I mean, the, the, the Brady thing, Brady-Belichick, it won't be the same because there won't be as much distance in there. Overall, just in terms of the time, though, is that I think those Jordan-era bowls are just iconic among just the sports-going public. It was Michael Jordan's career sort of intersected at like the perfect time in the mid-'80s going into the early-'90s with the boom of the NBA market was under the David Stern regime of just making it a global game and showing the amazing abilities of these athletes and it 
thing too being, and I'm going to ask you this, and this is where I'm glad I have you on the show doing this discussion with not just for the basketball aspect, but because, and previously with that NBA lottery pick where you covered the intersection of basketball and pop culture, which ultimately this entire documentary is at that intersection. And I wonder how much of this, in terms of the nostalgia and the looking back, is that you trace, we all seem to trace the beginning, regardless of what our age is. I mean, you know, my youth, you know, was the 80s. You were getting born in the 80s much, much later on. But we, regardless of your age, we, we seem to trace that as like the beginnings almost of modern life as we know it, whether it be the birth of cable TV, home video game systems, VCRs, etc., of where so much of pop culture sort of harkens back to that. You have Jordan that came out of the 80s, into the 90s, and then almost all the way up to the millennium at that point there, that that these are like formative years, and obviously for all the millennials out there, uh, this is a big thing where as far as them growing up and things that they got to experience, even if it was only like the tail end of it too. So it, as far as being like a time and a place in pop culture, bursting into the NBA in that year of 84 and taking it forward, I think that's part of the magic of the story as well. And I mean just generally in terms of the narrative, right? We always see, and we discussed this off air, we always see these cycles of people looking back to the past. And we're now in the 2010. I mean, we're, let me again just try we are in the 2020s, but we're now starting to look back at the 2010 and then the 2000s and the 90s, even though they don't feel that far away, it's been a 30 year run at this point. Right. tell you this, I don't know how many people have as colorful uh, a story as, as I do about where they were that night of the final shot. I didn't get to see very much of the game because I caught the end of the game uh, somewhere outside at a sports bar in the inner harbor of Baltimore. I had flown out there with some friends for the weekend to see the Great American Bash. So earlier in the evening, it was, I think, Hulk Hogan and Bret the Hitman Hart in the main event at the uh, Baltimore Arena against Roddy Piper and Macho Man Randy Savage. So there's some, uh, some names to hearken back to. So after being there for the Great American Bash card, we wandered out, and like I said, we watched it somewhere in downtown Baltimore, 
and I just remember going, ah, crap, because as a Cavs fan, I was always rooting against Michael Jordan no matter what. And uh, again, that's the, uh, that's the greatness of the player, that he could inspire that, that if he played on the other team, uh, you, 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 you might be somebody like me that might uh, begrudge him winning as much as he did. But uh, it was, you know, Michael Jordan warts and all, basically, in this documentary, which if there was going to be anything predictable, I think it would be that. I don't think any of us expected to come out of this thing with any kind of new sort of look at Michael Jordan because everybody has known over the course of the years what kind of a person he can be and stubborn and competitive and whatever. And, you know, he was owning his brand all the way through this thing. i got to give him that. Right, and I mean, in terms of the totality of how his brand was built, was also covered in the documentary itself and how just some of the ways that they talked about the man Jordan and all these sort of things that were contributed to his success and just how his team of David Falk and Tim Grover and just all those people were able to help him get to the peak of what he, what he could achieve because he, he, he has arguably done more with his abilities than any other athlete in the, in the history of the NBA outside of maybe Bill Russell. Right. an interesting point there because I don't know that we needed quite as much of the jock sniffers around him getting the airtime that they did particularly at the expense of more substantive figures but that's just a personal choice on my part mm-hmm. and, and it's understandable too because we want to we want to see how people react to things in the currency of how life is and I mean it would be disingenuous to not know that Michael Jordan had an inner circle with different people and talk to different people just how things were Right. With how, with how he is as a person. It's it just, and I think we also, because we all remember this, especially with Jordan in this current timeline, he himself as an individual has seen some criticism of the way he's handled the Bobcats now, the Hornets, in his timeline of being crying Jordan the meme, and just how everything has kind of been for him in recent timelines to go from being uberly successful to stuff, to still being a success, to now facing Absolutely. When you consider that, that I, I think a lot of people projected him based off of the career uh, at North Carolina that he would come in and be a multiple-time all-star and certainly would be capable of being the best player on a championship team or a team that might win uh, more than one title. But yeah, anytime you come in uh, and you, you have arguably the greatest career of all time, that is something that particularly in that day and age, was not, well, I don't want to say it wasn't expected, but it was, it was, it was rare for it to be expected. LeBron came into the league with those type of expectations in 03. I guess if you go back to Alcindor slash Jabbar in the late 60s, once in a blue moon somebody comes into the league where there are those kind of expectations, but just the fact that I could name those two examples off the top of my head, it's very rare. Uh, even even Magic and Bird, I think people thought they would come in and really have excellent type careers. But out, outside of Kareem Abdul-Jabbar 
and Michael Jordan, at least in the modern era, I not Michael Jordan, LeBron James, I struggle to think of anybody else that came in with the expectations that they would ever be a contender to be the greatest of all time. Absolutely, and I think in the case of Houston, you know, what you said stems to a couple of three different things. Like you said, first of all, uh, Kim Olajuwon had uh, a not just a Hall of Fame career, but a really superlative Hall of Fame career. They won two titles, and uh, it, be, being in a situation there where they, they had a chance uh, subsequently to put together the uh, the, uh, the Twin Towers uh, the way that they did. There was there was a, a thought that uh, and again while that didn't work out with Sampson although they did at least get to the uh, the '86 finals but uh, yeah like you said Houston gets let off the hook in a way that Portland never does because uh, Bowie was just a Bowie you know Greg Oden uh, Bill Walton albeit they won a championship a, a long line of talented but injury prone centers and uh, Bowie's career was I hesitate to say the most disappointing of them because Odin's is cripplingly disappointing as well. Very similar in that way as far as not uh, elevating their teams. And uh, again, just, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a real bitch to be in the shadow of uh, Michael Jordan as, as so many great players were over a period of time. think that uh, Gail Goodrich and uh, Jerry West might say, uh, well, you know, we're, we're just two of those guys, but look at how many times it happened to us. So for, for Walton, or I'm sorry, for, for Russell, he was rejecting Hall of Famers. It was less of them uh, numerically, yeah. but it was the same guys time and time again, it seemed like. Variety of different opponents and different people trying to 
I do agree with that. But uh, it was, again, it was a fascinating documentary. And, uh, again, just the fact that it was, you know, warts and all as far as how we're critiquing it, even that seems kind of fitting because when you're looking at the persona of Michael Jordan, that's what you're getting. And maybe a guy that had to be driven like he was uh, to be a champion, but uh, you know some of the some of the you know side effects of that or whatever you want to call it. Quite frankly, it would be him being an a-hole to a lot of people at a lot of times and everything like that. So I mean, there there's when when, when you're talking about being a winner. Uh, that's about as consummate as it gets when you're talking about being a human being That's where the picture is shall we say considerably more mixed so for a documentary like this uh, it, It's almost kind of fitting that we don't sit here and describe it as uh, the perfect kind of a thing because really there are no perfect people and uh, that's that's Exemplified no better than Michael Jordan when you're mixing in the personal stuff with his on-court excellence And if I learned anything about life talking about that when you're talking about the types of people that can be successful and, and some of the things about them uh, I almost get the sense that you're saying that Michael Jordan should have shown up at the 84 draft wearing a red uh, ba uh, baseball cap that said make Chicago great again <laughs> very well might he very well might and uh he certainly understands as the documentary underlined yet again that folks of all political persuasions do buy shoes so that was touched upon as well and uh michael jordan uh, capitalist par excellence among other things but it was uh, an excellent uh documentary vis-a-vis -vis entertainment uh, as far as as we said journalism uh that's where it's a little bit more spotty and uh, inconsistent, but uh, an excellent piece of something to be able to get us through this pandemic. I was looking forward to breaking it down with you, Ben Chu. It did not disappoint. Thank you so much for being a part of this today. Well, I appreciate it, Rick. If we learned anything from that documentary at the end of the day, then Scott Burrell is a home. Exactly. We did learn that. Yeah. <laughs> On that note, thank you, everybody, for joining us for FDH Lounge Mini Episode 1231.